Okay, uh, if you have your Bible, open and find Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. This morning we are coming to the next to last passage in our study through this great New Testament letter from the Apostle Paul. Lord willing, we will finish it next Sunday for any of you who may be still in, in town next week for that. Just just to remind you, too, uh, that when, when, you, when you come back from Christmas break um, in the spring, we're going we're gonna to be studying through the letter to James, uh, the letter of James. Um, and so I say that just so you can be preparing for that. Uh, I, maybe while you're home uh, between semesters, uh, you, can, you might even read through the letter a few times. You got, you got a few weeks to do that. You could even do a fairly careful study. Uh, through James. And the reason I encourage, I always encourage that, but especially, you know, if you've read James before, you know that there's some passages in James that are not always just at real intuitively easy to understand. There's some passages that may, how does that square with what Paul says? Things like that. So it may be the kind of letter that that it, if you spend some time with it over the break and read through it and think through it and study it for yourself, it will be much more productive Sunday by Sunday when we study through it together, if you've already read it and thought about it. But anyway, we're at a great passage this morning in Philippians 4. We're going to be thinking about verses 4 through 9. And uh, this is one of the more well-known passages in the letter, and it includes a number of themes that we've been seeing recently in the letter, like joy and perseverance. But uh, let's read it together, and then we're going to take a closer look at it. Um, So beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice or do these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We recognize it as such, and we confess our faith uh, to you uh, in that. And Lord, would you then please give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see in these words? And would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Would you give us hearts to embrace what you tell us here? Wills to desire to put into practice what you command us here. And Lord, would you give us uh, ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word and give me the help that I need to teach it as it should be taught. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're taking notes, here's what I want us to see in this passage. I want to organize it around two primary points. And to see what those are, I want you to look back at the text with me really quickly and maybe... Maybe you noticed 
when we read through it, but there's a very interesting turn of phrase in it, a turn of phrase that I think helps us see the divisions or the emphases in it. So what I'm talking about is notice uh, first in verse 7. So verse 7, the, the passage began in verse 4, and, and, and verse 7 so is sort of like a train of thought that began in verse 4. It finishes in verse 7, and notice that verse 7 uh, ends with this phrase, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Then he, then he's, he starts writing again in verse 8, a new little section of this passage, and he ends that train of thought in verse 9 with these words, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace. So it's, it's those two, those two uh, competing ideas, the, the peace of God and the God of peace. And I think that's intentional. I think it's poetic, but I think it's intentional. And, and, it, and it seems like Paul is organizing this passage around those two ideas. And so that's what we're going to try to do. That's, that's the aim. If you, if you ever lead a Bible study or you teach a lesson to anyone, lead a Sunday school class or whatever, that's, that's the way you ought to go about it. Like when you have a passage, you find out what is the point of that passage. And whatever that point is, that's your point. Don't come with your own ideas and structure it the way God's Word is already structured. And so that said, two points. And the first point is going to be from verses 4 to 7, knowing the peace of God. Knowing the peace of God. In, the, in those verses, Paul gives a series of commands, and a number of them, in just a few verses. and they But they all, I believe, lead to that promise in verse 7 of the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds, knowing the peace of God. And then secondly, verses 8 and 9, knowing the God of peace. And uh, in in these passages, Paul is going to focus on where you set your mind and your thoughts and the example that you follow in your actions. That's something we have already talked about in previous passages. And in that, you know the fellowship of the God of peace. Okay, It's a pretty simple passage. And I, I, I do hope I can leave some time at the end around our table. So all that said, let's dive in and think first about knowing the peace of God. All right, verses 4 to 7. So I said earlier, 4 to 7, Paul gives a number of commands. And some of them are the most familiar commands in the letter. But I think each one and all of them together are aimed at the promise of verse 7, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I say that because I think a lot of people see that promise that the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds. They see that as simply attached to the thing said just before it about not being anxious about anything. And in everything, prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And it's to that alone that this promise of peace, which surpasses understanding, is attached to. And, and, and as true as that is for that verse, I, I believe that what Paul is saying in verse 7 is a promise attached to the obedience given to all of those commands in verse 4, all of them together and each one individually. Those commands being in verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord. He gives that command twice. Again, I will say rejoice. And in verse 5, the command is to let your reasonableness be known. In verse 6, he gives Two commands again, one stated negatively, the other stated positively. Negatively, don't be anxious. Positively, make your requests known to God. And and for those who walk in all of these ways, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's not to say 
that it's not a promise that's true for each one of those individually. It is. It's just not confined to any one of those things. It's, it's true for all of them. And so Paul in these commands is showing how to know the peace of God in our lives. And so how do we see that? Let's just walk back through the commands and see it. So the, it, it, it is, the first way is, according to verse 4, is to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, first of all, before we get to what that command actually is, have you noticed all the superlative words in this passage? All the superlatives. Always. Everyone. Anything. Everything. All. Whatever. If there's any. And by the way, if there is any, that's a, that's a uh, in, the, in the Greek, it's if, if there is and there is any, whatever, it's all, it's so expansive, right? Um, and and, and why, do, why do I point that out? Why, does, why is Paul doing it? Because I think Paul is trying to make the point that when he's talking about these commands, he's talking about obeying them in an ongoing way, in an ongoing way. And why does that need to be said? Because we don't need to see any of these things as, well, I did that one time and I didn't feel the peace of God, Right? No, Paul is saying the peace of God is something you enjoy as you continually come back again and again and walk in these ways. So back to that first command, to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, he says it, rejoice. What does it mean? Because it seems simple, but what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? It can mean a lot of things. By itself, it can mean a lot of things. Rejoicing in the Lord could mean in the strength that the Lord provides. Rejoice, true. Uh, It could mean, perhaps it does here, rejoice in the Lord could mean rejoicing in who the Lord is. Rejoice in who he is, meaning in his character, in 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 his characteristics. Rejoicing in his glory. Rejoicing in his perfection. Rejoicing in his omniscience. He knows all things. You just reflect on that and rejoicing in his providence over your life, rejoicing in his goodness and on down the list, rejoicing in who he is. That's rejoicing in the Lord. I think that's true, and I think, but I think that's not all of it. I think in this context, in, in, in Philippians 4, I'm convinced that, the, that he first and for, foremost means rejoicing in the gospel, Right? rejoicing in the Lord and in his gospel. In other words, that's just saying not just rejoicing in who the Lord is, but rejoicing in what the Lord has done, right? Um, and why do I say that? Why do I think he's talking about the gospel first first and foremost here? Not only because in this context, that's what he's been talking about in chapter 3, but also in this very text, I think he gives us um, signals to that. Because in this very text, in this very section of the text, verses 4 to 7, it's bookended by these two phrases. In verse 4, it's in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And in verse 7, he will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So in the Lord, in Christ Jesus. And that language, that kind of language is very significant in Paul's writings. That that recalls what he did say in chapter 3, verse 9, that that for, you know, leaving behind all that he was, that, that he could be found in him, found in him, in Christ, in Christ's righteousness before God. 
And that fits what he's saying here. Because, because it, it is by this that you come to know the peace of God in your life in a more visceral way. And think about what he's commanding here. Think about what he's commanding here. He's commanding us to rejoice. That's a strange kind of command, isn't it? Like, it's like commanding somebody to laugh, right? It's just a hard thing to just conjure up just because somebody told you to do it. Rejoice. You know, you can't just do it, right? If somebody said jump, you can jump, but but rejoice? Like, so what I think when, he's, when he commands us to rejoice, he's actually implying a much deeper kind of commandment that, that leads to that rejoicing. And that is because you can't rejoice in what you don't know. You can't rejoice in what you don't know well, right? So in commanding us to rejoice here, he's commanding us to think deeply. He's commanding us to think deeply about the Lord and about his gracious gospel about the Lord and His gracious gospel, whereby through repentance and faith we are found in Christ. And our sins are not held against us. And it's like we say in the, in the Heidelberg Catechism on Wednesday nights a lot of times, that not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven. I hope that phrase stands out to you when we, when we confess that catechism answer. That not only others but I too have had my sins forgiven. That, that, we're, that our, our sins are not held against us, that, that we are united to Christ, that I'm clothed in His righteousness when I stand before God now and for all eternity. And I'm alive to God in Christ. Paul is saying the longer we reflect on Him and reflect on that gospel, and we realize how fixed, how fixed our status is, how fixed that status is, that God's favor and blessing on, 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 on the believer never wavers. It does not ebb and flow because the blessings earned by Christ never waver. They don't ebb and flow. They are fixed. And the more we reflect on that, Paul is saying, the more our joy will grow in him. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It'll guard our hearts and minds. Guard against what? Against the opposite of peace. Right? And they abound in this issue. Temptations to doubt. Temptations to doubt that we are accepted by God. Temptations to doubt that we belong to Him. Temptations to believe that it's easy to believe, just like that catechism says, it's easy to believe that that others have had their sins forgiven, but that I too have had my sins forgiven, temptations to not believe that or to not, not embrace it fully, not to rest in that, in that. Paul says rejoice because the gospel is always true. The gospel is for sinners, and if you're a sinner, the gospel's for you. The gospel never changes. Paul issues another command. In verse 5, he says, if you look there, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. And if you're reading, um, if you're reading a, a, a translation different than the ESV, your Bible probably says something other than reasonableness. I think the NIV says something like gentleness. 
Uh, others say kindness. Um, if Charlie's in here with this King James Version, moderation. Uh, good sense is one. Consideration. In fact, even in, in 1 Peter 2, 1, this same word is, is actually used, and it's sort of used in a negative sense, and, and, and it's talked about in terms of showing favoritism to somebody. But what is, if you think about it, what is favoritism? Now, it's, it's, it's something that's done in an unfair or wrong kind of way, but what is it at its nub? It's going out of your way to show kindness or goodness to somebody, just in an unfair way. But it's that it's that action of going out of your way to be kind and considerate and and uh, and and generous is what is in view here. And in all that, you get a sense of what this word means. It's it's how it's it's it's, it's it has to do with how you treat other people and and treating others with all those kinds of ways, with gentleness, with consideration, going out of your way to do good to them. And Paul is saying here. The command in verse 5 is not just try to do that every now and then. He's saying, be known for that. Be known for that. Let, let it be known to everyone. Why? What does verse 5 say? The Lord is at hand. Even that, the significance of that meaning, that word is, is, is debated. The word is ingus, and it means near. The Lord is near. Uh, and the debate is, in what sense does Paul mean near? D- does he mean near as in the Lord is near us by his spirit who is with us? So be kind to everyone. Or is he talking about near as in his his coming again is imminent. It could happen at any time, right? As in the second coming of Christ. And in that sense, it's at hand. It's near. It's, it, it, it's, it's almost like, um, when is the door going to open? Near in that kind of way. And I think both are true. He's near in it. He's with us by his spirit. That's going to be true in the second part of this passage. But I think in this part, he's talking about it, the Lord is at hand. He's near in the sense that he could come again at any moment. And I think this is Paul, Paul's way of talking about what Peter says in 2 Peter 3. Now, this, you, you can flip or you can just listen. But in 2 Peter 3, Peter writes, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then he ends that passage with this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter in view of the imminent return of Christ, asks, what sort of people are you to be in the fact that he's going to come again? Paul here, in the same way, he's not asking, he's just saying, this is the sort of person you ought to be. This is the sort of person you ought to be. Gentle, considerate, reasonable, kind, intentionally doing good. Whatever is the opposite of all those, snarky, you know, 
sarcastic. I fingers pointed at myself, right? Or just mean or a jerk. Don't be that guy. And Paul is saying the second coming of Christ ought to motivate us to live that kind of life. Why? Because we want to be found faithful when he comes, whenever that may be. And we can love our enemies as Christ told us to. And we can be kind and considerate and reasonable and gentle and intentionally doing good to those that anybody outside looking in would say, why is he doing that? That guy's a jerk to him. You can do that because we know when the Lord comes, and it is imminent, it could happen at any time, we know he will more than right every wrong. He'll take care of it, right? So we can turn the other cheek because the Lord has promised to come again. When you live like that, Paul says, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus against what? Against the fear of his return. If you're living in a wayward way, if you're living in, 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 in just high-handed sin, when you think about his return, you might tremble a, a moment at that thought. Well, certainly if we think, as verse 5 as verse 4 said, if we think deeply on the gospel daily, that'll guard our hearts and minds against the fear of his return. But certainly, as we don't live in high-handed sin, as we actively try to walk in obedience to Christ, an obedient, kind, gentle, considerate, love-your-enemies kind of life, as Christ told us to, we can even all the more in our conscience look forward to that day, knowing that we want to be found faithful when he comes. And, that's a, that, and the God of peace will help us look forward to that day. Paul looked forward to that day, looked forward to it. And he said, he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge. He's looking forward to meeting the righteous judge. That takes some kind of special atonement to look forward to that meeting that guy, right? The righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, when we not only preach the gospel to ourselves, but we intentionally live lives of Christ-like obedience, it'll help us love his appearing, look forward to it. And that's how the peace of God guards us in that moment. But in ver Paul issues a third set of commands in verse 6. As I said earlier, he states two commands, one, one negatively and the other the positive counterpart. The negative prohibition is, don't be anxious about anything. That sounds hard. I think Paul's goal here is to make known and remind believers of the resource we have for all of our anxieties, which is why he immediately positively says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Now, a few things about that. First of all, Paul is saying, Nothing is too insignificant to pray about. Nothing is. Why is he saying that? Because we certainly have the capability of being anxious about just about anything. And so as, as expansive and broad as and perhaps frivolous as your anxieties are, to that same extent, go to the Lord in prayer. Doesn't matter what it's about. 
And secondly, when he says, make your request known to God, he's just saying, tell it to God. He's not saying, God doesn't already know. You need to make it known to him. He's just saying, tell God. Jesus said, your father already knows what you need before you ask him. But third, I want to draw your attention in particular to notice that phrase, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Why does Paul say to make your requests known to God in prayer with thanksgiving? Because we can know without fail in every moment and in every situation, in all our anxieties, that God will not only answer our prayers, he will answer them better than we asked him. You can go ahead and thank him for it. I love what J.I. Packer said in Knowing God, the book which I've committed to you many times. J.I. Packer said, God answers the prayer we ought to have made rather than the prayer we did make. Chew on that one a while. God answers the prayer we ought to have made rather than the prayer we did make. Sometimes we pray stupid things and God just lets that one go right on by and he gives you what you should have asked for. Thank him for it. Scripture says also that Christ himself and the Holy Spirit are interceding for us. And so we have every reason to give thanks. No, there, is, there is no basis ever for our worries and anxieties God knows our weaknesses, though. And it's, at that, it's, 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 it's here that that promise of verse 7 is important, too. When we are fearful and full of anxiety, and when we go to the Lord in prayer, trusting His goodness, expressed in thankfulness, even before we know how His answer will come, Paul says the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And it's particularly here that that phrase, which surpasses all understanding, stands out. Because... Our fears and our anxieties can sometimes feel overwhelming and crippling. I I, I didn't invite them. They came out of the blue, right? And they're, they're hitting me in the middle of the night and I can't go to sleep and everything seems bigger at night. Like it's just hard. It's got me so I I don't know how I can fall back asleep. That's the way anxieties can feel. And to think about assuaging that to think about peace of mind in that seems to surpass understanding but that's precisely what the peace of God can do it surpasses what you think could happen he can do beyond all that we could ask or think Paul is saying these are the ways we can walk and know the peace of God rejoicing in the Lord and in his gospel Christ-like obedience toward others as we look forward to his coming again, going to the Lord and trusting prayer in all of our fears and anxieties, in all these ways the Lord rewards us with his peace that surpasses all understanding. As we look quickly at the last section of the passage, it's important that we see that Paul is careful to say that as believers we don't just know the peace that God gives, we can also know the fellowship of the God of peace himself. Think with me for just a minute about Verses 8 and 9, and we'll be brief here. We'll have some time around our tables. Paul, in verse 8, begins this sort of, this is sort of the final exhortation in the letter. Because in verse 10, it's just going to start sort of his his departing words and him wrapping up the letter. So verses 8 and 9 are sort of his final 
final exhortation here. So he begins it with, finally, brothers. And he organizes all that he says here around uh, two, you guessed it, commands. Verse eight, the command is, think. Think about these things. And the command in verse nine is, practice. Do. So think and do. That's his two commands in verses eight and nine. Think and do. Paul says in verse uh, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and he's not wondering if there is, he's saying if there is and there is, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Where do you find all those things to think about? How do you know what is true and honorable and lovely and commendable? How do you know? Not by your fallen sense. We misjudge a lot of things. Where do you find all those things to think about? In his word. Just read Psalm 119. You find all these kinds of words in that one psalm. That his word provides all of those things to think about. And it's here that I think if we're talking about fellowship with the God of peace himself, because when you do, when you think about those things, Paul is saying the God of peace will be with you. I think it's precisely here that we have a link with the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the, that's the means by which the God of peace is with us, by His Spirit. What, because what does that look like? What does being filled with the Spirit look like? We've talked about this before, but it's been a minute. Um, in, in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he, then he itemizes all the things that, that come out of that. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, da 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 da. Right? But then when you look at a sister passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul interestingly writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then when he says what comes out of that is the same thing. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, da 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 da. Right? And what I'm saying is in both passage, passages, being filled with the Spirit, and letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly produce the same thing. There, I believe there are two ways of saying the same thing. Or at the very least, when, when, when you read in the command in Ephesians 5.18, it says, be filled with spirit. And you go, how do I obey that command? That's when you go to Colossians 3 and you find the answer. You obey that command by letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? And the presence of God in our, 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 our lives is, is, is experienced through the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's as we dwell on His Word that the Spirit is present in us. And how does that show up in our life? Through empowering us to obey, which is what verse 9 says. It's not enough to think and dwell on the Word of God and the things of God, but as we're filled with His Spirit, filled with His Word, Paul says to practice, to do the things um that we have seen in godly examples who have lived and continue to live the kind of obedient life that we're pursuing. We talked about that um, last week. And the Holy Spirit, the God of peace, will be with us by His Holy Spirit to help us to do that. Now, this is an encouraging passage. I'm proud of myself for giving you a few minutes to talk around your tables. I just want to say that publicly. Um, Jesus, you know, said before He went to the cross that that he was leaving his peace with us, right? And Paul is confirming that, that Christ's peace is a peace that surpasses understanding. And his peace is given to us through his very presence with us.
as we walk in obedience.